You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will hold an April Fool's special with a very special guest. Hello and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am so excited to be back here with all of you in my office slash my daughter's walk-in closet. <laughs> I am currently surrounded by poofy dresses and I feel right at home, honestly. Um, today we are going to have a very special guest and we're going to be doing some really funny crimes um, just in the spirit of April Fool's. And I just wanted to go through some housekeeping before we got into that. And also before I brought in my guest, I just didn't want to subject my guest to having to just sit quietly and still while I rattle all these things off. So without further ado, let's get into the housekeeping. Um, if you're not following me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved, you totally should. Um, there you can look at pictures. You can see videos of the cases that we cover if they're available. I pop in on stories every once in a blue moon. I'll do a live not too often though, so don't get excited. Um, you can DM me a case suggestion. You can just DM me in general. I love hearing from you guys and talking to you guys throughout the week. Um, it just brings me so much joy that I've created a community and that you guys have wanted to be a part of that. So thank you so much. Um, if Instagram isn't your thing, honestly, you're probably doing better emotionally than most of us because Instagram can be the worst sometimes. It's the best, but it also can be the worst. Um, so if Instagram isn't your thing, you can go to my website. It's www.mysteriesstillunsolved.com. There you can binge my now 106 episodes. I know it's crazy. I feel like it was just yesterday that I was starting my podcast and recording my very first one. And I was super unsure and uncertain and didn't really know where this was going to go. And I don't even think I could have predicted making it to episode 12 back then. And here I am episode 106 and I'm feeling very proud and happy about that and thank you guys for um, all your support and encouragement because I know I wouldn't have made it to episode 106 without your love and support um, you can go to my website if you want to binge those episodes or if you want to purchase merch um, I just placed an order for shirts, so I'm not going to be placing another order until June 30th. However, if you cannot wait to get some merch in your hands or in your mailbox, uh, we still have vinyl stickers. So the vinyl stickers are really cute. I love it. I put on my water bottle. I put on my toaster. It's just kind of happy, and I just love it. And people ask me questions about it, and they're like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, that's the podcast that I do. Um, so those I have on hand. So if you order them, I will get them in the mailbox uh, to the post office, I mean, not the mailbox, <laughs> into the post office like within 24 hours and they will get to you in a couple of days. So if you want to get something quick, that would be a great option. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Oh, I also have a Patreon. My Patreon, um, I'll link the link in the show notes. There you can donate monetarily to the podcast if you feel so inclined. There's three different tiers and I will just let you read about them yourself um, just because it takes up a lot of time to get into each one of them. Um, but they all have really awesome benefits and perks, one of which being that if you are a member of any of the tiers of patrons, uh, you will get a bonus episode each and every month. Um, 
for your ears only. It's a VIP episode. So I'm going to be recording that next week. We actually already have one um, there so you can learn about the Amityville Horror House. Um, but next week we're going to have a new one. So if you want to be one of the first people to hear that new episode, join the patron program. We love to have you. Um, I think that that's it for all of my, uh, housekeeping. So without further ado, I'm going to welcome our very special guest. If you haven't guessed it already, maybe you haven't been with us for very long, but I've only ever had one guest on my podcast. And this is that same one and only guest, my mom. So let's go on and bring her onto the podcast. Hey mom, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I don't even feel bad for you because at least it's not a snowstorm. <laughs> I know. It's like, I think you guys have it backwards right now. Like, in at the east, we're having, like, 70, 70 degree weather, 65 degree weather, and then there's you, 35, 32, 34. <laughs> you can take it. It's not fair. It's not fair. No, it's good. Karma. <laughs> Karma for what? <laughs> Karma for all the nice weather that you guys always get, and then we're here freezing. Yeah. In Mother's Day, we even get snow. That's true. That's very, very true. So, I'll, take this, I'll take this on my week off from teaching. Um. So did you, Um. did any of the students that you have, if you guys didn't know, my mom's a teacher, did any of your students try to pull an April Fool's prank on you? No, because in a long, long, long time, April Fool's was on a Saturday. That's true. So I didn't have to hear, like, your shoes are untied. There's something on your shirt. I put April a whoop. Fools, I put a whoopee cushion on your chair. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't do. They're not that cruel. That's good. Well, yeah. you already know this, but I figured I'd share this story with the the listeners about my April Fool's experience. My cat pulled an April Fool's prank on me. Um, what did she do? <laughs> so I was getting laundry out of the laundry room and all of a sudden my cat like somehow opened up the office door downstairs and oh, ran yeah. up like super, super fast. <laughs> and I swear I saw somebody walking up my stairs. So I thought that like somebody was in our house and had spooked my cat and was walking up our stairs. So I like grabbed my stuff and like ran upstairs and I was like, Brian, somebody's in our house. And so Brian, I lock myself in the room with the kids and Brian goes downstairs to check it out. And he looks through every single room and he comes upstairs and he's like, there wasn't anything. And I was like, are you sure? I'm like crying and shaking. And he's like, yeah, there's nobody there. And then I went downstairs just to kind of see, you know, what did I see that maybe looked like this? And I took a picture. Yeah. To prove that there was somebody there and he was not looking good enough. Yes. And I went downstairs and I actually took a picture of what I saw. So I'll post it on the podcast. But you have to keep in mind the picture that I took, there are lights on downstairs in the basement. But when you see it, just picture it being dark down there. And so I took a picture of it and I was like, Brian, I found out who the guy was. And he was like, what was it? And I showed him the picture and he was like, oh, that is creepy. And uh, Brian had just like hung up one of his really dark black coats on the banister and it looked like a man's arm. <laughs> and I thought that I yeah, saw it like. Look, I, I do have to give it to you. It did look like somebody, especially if you don't have glasses on, you're kind of sleepy. 
Yeah. Kind of dark. And yeah. you already spooked up because you heard a basement door opening. That's pretty Yeah. Dark. It was super creepy. And also, I had been listening to crime podcasts, so <laughs> I wasn't really in the Let's best see, state of mind. You so. were almost a victim. You almost I know. I would have had to do a podcast on you. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> who took, who took Rochelle? Maybe it was the walking cat with the goat. Yeah, the coat man. Not okay, the goat man, the coat man. Yeah, you did tell me that. But it, I mean, I'm a chicken, so. He was trying I to. Know, I don't even know how I stay in haunted hotels when I'm a chicken. I don't know how you do that either. But we've done it before, and it was actually kind of fun. I think if you go with somebody who just wants to have fun, then it can be fun. But, mm-hmm. yeah. The coat man yeah, wanted so to why, drag so me. Go with your dad? I don't know. Dad does not enjoy going. <laughs> Well, I'm happy to say that the coat man did not drag me to the depths of hell through the closet. So here I am. I'm I'm alive and well. All right. So I have this book and my awesome in-laws gave it to me. It's called History's Dumbest Crimes. And they know me too well because they got this for my birthday. And I'm just going to read my mom a couple of my favorites and just kind of get her reaction to them. So are you ready to do that, mom? Yeah, she's never heard these before, so this is going to be her honest first reactions to these tales. All right. Okay, so the first one is Stealing the Crown Jewels, the man who tried to steal England. Thomas Blood was a man with an extraordinarily dopey, but in parts, very clever plan. He aimed to break into the kingdom's most formidably fortified stronghold, the Tower of London, and steal from under the very noses of its garrison the sacred symbols of the king's kingship, the crown jewels. With one daring sting, he planned to humiliate the English state, mock the king's divine right to rule, and maybe even make a tiny bundle from selling off the gold and gems. Weeks okay, wait, 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 wait. Like, this whole scene is already going back because <laughs> he is just going to single-handed steal this jewel. Mm-hmm. The, the, the symbol of England. Yep. Okay, like, how long ago was this? I don't even know. <laughs> we'll probably right. find out. Okay, this is, this is gonna be good. Okay. I also don't know how he really plans on selling these, because I feel like if you're like, hey, I've got the king's jewels, like, somebody's gonna tell. <laughs> so you're gonna be beheaded, because they used to do that back then, so... All right, so weeks before the heist, the keeper of the jewels, Talbot Edwards, led blood disguised as a country parson and accompanied by an actress that he had hired to play his wife down to the vault where they admired the crown jewels through the bars of a locked iron grill. As planned, the parson's wife was suddenly taken ill and Talbot, completely taken in by the double act, insisted that they come upstairs to meet his wife and to rest and recover. The two couples struck up a friendship, and Blood, his wife, and soon a fictitious nephew were regular guests at the Edwards table. So they this was like premeditated. They were hanging out with these people a lot before they did this. Eventually, they got a dinner invitation on May 9th, and this would be the date of their heist. The night of the heist. Accompanying the phony parson to the party were his nephew and two friends. His nephew, in quotes. As they had time to spare before sitting down to dinner... Blood asked his host if he could show the crown jewels to his nephews. 
Such was the old man's trust in Blood's churchman persona that he did something that went against the rules, as well as common sense. He unlocked the grill so that the visitors could get a clear view of the fabulous crown jewels. With the grill open, the thieves dropped their act and knocked Edwards to the ground to re restrain him, but failed to prevent him, shouting, Treason! Save the crown jewels! Treason! But his calls for help didn't reach the guardsmen who were standing in front of the building. So they're, like, in the basement, and he's, like, yelling treason, treason but these people are, like, in the outside. Like, they're not going to hear him say that. Uh, Blood grabbed the St. Edward crown, which he stamped on to flatten it in order to hide it beneath his clothes. One of Blood's accomplices grabbed the orb, which he stuffed down his britches. The other had to saw the scepter in half to make it fit in the bag, which I don't really think is going to make it valuable anymore if he's just sawing it in half. Yeah. The alarm was raised by a member of Edward's household who heard the old man's cries as he came downstairs. He rushed down the stairs but couldn't prevent the thieves from escaping with their loot. The disturbance alerted the guardsmen outside, but Blood and his accomplices fought their way out of the jewel house and ran toward the tower's only exit gate. But with half the garrison on their heels, they were quickly apprehended. Wah, wah. <laughs> oh my gosh. The badly damaged crown jewels were recovered, and the three would-be thieves were led away in chains. Stuffing jewels down your pants? Failing to plan an exit route? It seems unlikely that Blood planned on getting away with the loot, if money was the main reason for the heist. An alternative surmise is that once he'd settled a political score with Charles Blood, didn't really care what happened to him. As he was led away, the most likely outcome would be a hanging. <laughs> Had he decided that settling his score with a king and the accolade of history's greatest jewel thief were worth dying for, it's easy to imagine that the story concludes with Blood and his companions in the gallows, but how the story ends is as unlikely as the bungled heist itself. Blood refused to speak to anyone but the king. Intrigued, King Charles granted him the honor of an informal interview, whose only witnesses were the king's brother and several gentlemen of the household. During their meeting, Blood and the king reconciled. By rights, Blood should have been left to rot in the tower, but Charles, in a move that dismayed his close advisors, pardoned the conspirators and even awarded Blood a generous pension. The pants stuff. I know. The pants-stuffing renegade who dared lay hands on the precious regalia of the King of England somehow managed to become a regular guest at court until his peaceful death at the age of 62. Whoa! So he cut it in half, totally destroyed it, but the king having a party companion? Yeah, because they, they were mad at each other, but then they became friends again. I just knew. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't understand who's the fool there. <laughs> I know. I mean, I mean, it started kind of brilliant. I mean, he did friend him and everything, but then, like, I, I, that's messed up. I know. <laughs> but it seems like he never tried to steal from him again, so. That we know of. Yeah, that we know of. <laughs> Okay, so the next one is murder by animals. Okay, like, I'm a little concerned now. Yeah, you have a dog. I do have a dog. Okay. Sleep with one eye open. All right. Okay, 
So animal trials, particularly in the 14th and 15th century, were relatively common. If an animal committed a crime, the argument went, then it should be subject to the same rules as a man or a woman. Some of the crimes committed were a little more far-fetched than others. <laughs> so, wait a second. You know how many crimes my dog has committed? Like, he steals food from me. I know. Like, he, like, sometimes he kicks me out of the bed because he wants to sleep on my side of the, room, of the bed. Hmm. You should put him on uh, trial. Yeah, I was going to say, my dog then is a goner. <laughs> <laughs> And your cat tried to, like, scare you to death. So. Yeah. Yeah. Attempted murder. <laughs> attempted heart attack. Yeah. Attempted murder by induced heart attack. <laughs> All right. So let's see. Uh, okay. You got my attention. Go okay. <laughs> there are cases on record of weevils. Do you know what weevils are? No. They're like no these little bugs. Okay, so there are cases of weevils being charged with destroying a vineyard and given a date by which they must quit damaging the crop or else they would be sentenced to death. <laughs> well, um, I see. I put a spider on my basement yesterday. Black, yucky spider. Electric I chair. It, <laughs> I gave it the death penalty by squishing it. <laughs> oh, you didn't even give him time to, like, have his I last meal. among the larger animal criminals were pigs horses and cattle enclosure was far from universal in many countries until the mid 19th century so animals could literally be found hanging around street corners possibly as a prosecution lawyer might claim simply looking for trouble and of course not every human versus animal encounter would end well in a few cases if a toddler came across a huge and hungry pig for example it might end very unhappily indeed this is ridiculous <laughs> okay first off i don't even know what's more disturbing the fact that they're like like putting animals on trial or if a to- like do pigs eat children cuz it says if a toddler came across a huge and hungry pig yes um pigs are known to eat anything that you put on on the scene so when your dad was i think he was like 7 years old you know how they had a farm yeah um so one of his job was to um take the pig feed you know to the is, is it called a trough yeah the trough i think yeah yeah Like, I knew that they ate. Your father was screaming. <laughs> well, I know that there's like this case of the serial killer. He's like a pig farmer and he would like feed his yeah. victims. But I thought that they only ate it because it was dead. I didn't know that they would eat like a human alive person. That's disturbing. That makes me when the next time I go to the farm that's by my house, I'm not going to look at the pigs. I'm going to be really wary of them. Ooh. But if they will eat anything, it's kind of gross. So, 
Okay. In 1379, so we're taking it back, way back, throwback, the victim was not a child but an adult. That September, two packs of swine belonging to the prior of one of the local monasteries encountered a young man named Perinat Muet, son of their swineherd, and while no one knew what he had done to annoy them, he ended up dead. Witnesses claim that only three of the pigs were actually involved in the murderous assault. The others had millied around, squealing loudly, but they hadn't done anything to stop it. So they would be charged with aiding and abetting the murders. (laughs) Every pig involved was put on trial, and all of them were sentenced to death. (laughs) Yes. They snorted. They went, how do you plead? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my my gosh. This little pig went to jail. (laughs) Okay, so you might think that most pigs are under a death sentence anyway. After all, few of them live their lives to the full span possible, and most of them end up as pork. The catch in the case of an animal trial was that the accused, if found guilty, might be hanged, burned, or put to death in some more, more, uh, like, imaginative way. But the authorities did not allow the carcass of these pigs to be butchered and eaten. So harboring a criminal pig wasn't just shaming for the owner, it represented a financial loss. And if two whole herds of pigs were involved the commercial cost was considerable. So. I can see that. I mean, pigs are expensive. Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) the whole pig gang got involved. Maybe they were worried that if you ate a piece of the murderous pig, then you would become a murderer. It's a hog gang. (laughs) (laughs) Like mad cow disease, but like mad pig disease. <laughs> Don't mess with us. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm all ham on all of it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> really hamming it up. You'll be a pork chop. <laughs> we're going to pound you like a pork tenderloin. That's what they were saying. Oh my gosh. Because I was thinking that sounds to me like an excuse to have a, a, a barbecue, you know, like a roast. Yeah. Yeah, and like if you really want to eat one of your pigs, why would why go through this trouble? Just kill it. It's yours. I just I just I'm just thinking about the weight of bacon. I know. It's a travesty. <laughs> Probably the biggest travesty of thirteen seventy nine. Yes, you know. Gotta be careful with those pigs and their gang. <laughs> Okay, so it says, why do we know so much about this particular case? Because more complete records than usual survive, including an appeal. So there was an appeal in this case from Friar Humbert de Portier, who was responsible for the pigs to the Duke of Burgundy, who had the power to commute their sentence. 
The Duke saw fit to be merciful. The three pigs who had actually carried out the murder must be killed, but he decided that the remainder should be pardoned, presumably ensuring that the monastery's supply of sausages was safeguarded for their future. The Duke didn't even demand, as was within his remit, that the pigs of lesser guilt serve a prison sentence. One of the many horrible disadvantages of medieval prisons was that you might find yourself with a literal pig for a cellmate. Instead, he allowed the ones that were just aiding and abetting the crime to go free. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. <laughs> oh my gosh. You feel at everything. This is, I mean, if this were to happen right now, do you know how crazy that would be with those animal rights? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, Andy, we're just asking about, like, did they have a lawyer? And they did. So I'll tell you about it. It says, animals on trial weren't shortchanged when it came to legal aid. At another murder trial in 1457, this time of a sow and her six piglets, the courtroom was attended by the judge, two prosecuting attorneys, and two attorneys defending the pig and her children. Eight witnesses were called, and eventually, while the pig hanged, the piglets were let off on account of their youth and the fact that they had probably been led astray by their mother. (laughs) Their mother was just leading them down a really wrong and murderous path. Oh my gosh, she said, did people really believe that their animals understood both their actions and the court cases that were triggered by them? Surely, (laughs) Surely even the most ardent enthusiast for justice could not really think that the noises an animal made when brought before the court constituted a legal argument. There's a more cynical modern view of the reason for many of these animal trials They served as a warning to owners to control their livestock and ensure that it didn't cause a public nuisance, although that doesn't really explain the prosecution of termites or rats. That is ridiculous. (laughs) Termites. Are you serious? It's so funny. Were they really that bored in their lower system that they just say, okay, nobody's committing crime, so let's turn to the termites and the ants. What about the ants? This is my theory. It was 1379. There probably wasn't much to do. And this just kind of like spiced things up a little bit. <laughs> but now I kind of want to see like a, like, like a reality show of not like killing animals, but like <laughs> animals committing crimes. Yes. <laughs> judge, <laughs> judge Farmer Judy. <laughs> I mean, that would, that would make me want to go on study law if I had to defend little piggies that I am. Yeah. But the piggies were orphaned, which is kind of sad. That is kind of sad. But, but at least I'm the sure piglets weren't that, killed. I'm sure that the bad example of the mother let them stray and they also were judged sometimes. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they were adopted by a wholesome pig mother. Oh my gosh. That's so ridiculous. Oh. <laughs> Super funny. Well, that, that, crime, that crime was solved. That crime was solved, and they were brought to justice. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> the next one is uh, swapping fingerprints for palm prints. Okay. 
So scientists had been noting the individuality of fingertip whorls and grooves for well over two centuries by the time Francis Galton published, but his book led everyone to look at fingerprints more closely. Galton's assertion that the chances against two people having a closely matching fingerprint were around 64 million to one, uh, quite a lot more skin in the game. In 1900, Edward Henry's system of identification was published in the classification and use of fingerprints, and in 1901, Scotland Yard started its own branch of fingerprint identification with New York City following suit in 1902. By 1910, most police departments, both state and local, had a fair knowledge of taking prints from an individual, lifting them from a crime scene, and bringing the two together. So that's pretty cool. You'd think that as soon as criminals became aware of what was going on, they would knock early fingerprinting science on its head by, I don't know, wearing gloves in any given situation in which they were doing something that wasn't legal. No doubt some did, but there there are the ones who weren't heard of again. What's really surprising is the number of who didn't. And some really bright sparks thought the answer to having incriminating fingerprints was to find some way of getting rid of their fingerprints altogether. By 1934, fingerprint science was well established. And when a well-known U.S. gang member called Theodore Clutas, nicknamed Handsome Jack, was killed after pulling a gun on police, his postmortem found that something odd had happened to his fingerprints. Every one, including the pads of his thumbs, was heavily scarred in a hemispherical pattern. The lumpy, sur- yeah, the lumpy surface looked like healed over knife wounds. Any prints he left would have been immediately recognizable. So, like, even though he tried to cut off his fingertips, like, people would just be like, hey, this guy cut off his fingertips and his fingerprints look like this. Like, it doesn't change anything. Um yeah, but what Clutus seemed to have been doing was trying to cut his fingerprints off altogether. Clutus may have been among the first to try it, but he certainly wasn't the last. The notorious John Dillinger, gangster, bank robber, and all-around bad guy, also had a go. When he entered the most wanted list, Dillinger turned to plastic surgery to change his face, and when he was offered a two-for-one, face and fingertips, by the early plastic surgeon, Dr. Wilhelm Lozer, he agreed to undergo a number of painful operations and processes. The fingerprint erasure was quite basic. Lozer cut Dillinger's fingertips, then rubbed acid into the open wounds, and filed what remained of the fingertip whorls until they were no longer visible. That is a nail salon I don't want to go through. <laughs> Yeah, it does not sound I mean, enjoyable. Why don't they just use gloves? I know. Why don't you just use a glove instead of put tape around your the tip of your fingers or something? Yeah, putting acid on open wounds. Oh my gosh! File it and like just put gloves on. Well, this is what I'm thinking about. When I get a paper cut and then I have to use hand sanitizer, ow, yeah. that hurts. Can you imagine putting that on all five of your fingertips? No. And it seems like it was like an experiment. Like the surgeon didn't even really know what he was doing. Uh, 
Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, no such luck because as his fingertips healed over, the characteristic skin whorls began to reappear. So when you cut off your fingerprints, they just come back. Okay, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you regrow your fingertips and your fingerprints after going through like all that trauma. I, mean, I, I know that you know you can, you know, when you get a paper cut or you get a cut, yeah. You know, you can, but I didn't know that they will regrow even after he went through all that acid and stuff like that. That's actually so, pretty cool. But that's a bummer, actually, for him. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So the combination of his fingerprints and like the scarring that was caused by his fingerprint erasure surgery um, scarred his fingertips and made them even more recognizable. Oh, that backfire. Yeah. <laughs> That's a bummer. I hope he got his money back. I know. Um, so basically just like a lot of people would just like cut their fingerprints off and just try and get out of it, but then it would make them even more recognizable. So yeah, I think you're right. The cheapest and easiest solution is just to wear gloves. Gloves? Put duct tape in something. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. And did you know that they're actually um, uh, starting to do uh, palm print studies? Like they want palm prints to be as recognizable as fingerprints. Because apparently your palm print also has a really distinguished pattern. You know what's interesting? Like, you know how you say that two snowflakes, that there's no two snowflakes alike, you mm -hmm. know? I, it's just surprising how the, the, like, billions of people that are on this earth know yeah. two people and fingerprints. So well, and that's my question, too, is that, okay, so at the same time, it's a 64 million to one chance that two people would have fingerprints that match. But then you have to think about all the people that died too. So it's not even like you're just comparing it to like 64 million people. It's like even people that were alive in 13, in the 1300s, they don't have a matching fingerprint that's, to you. That's so weird. Um, I mean, sometimes I burn myself with like a straightening iron and I think I'm going to die. I can't even imagine going through that pain of transformation. Just wear gloves. Yeah. And after you burn your hand on your straightening iron, somebody just being like, oh, here, let me put some acid on it. <laughs> and then also <laughs> file it. Oh. That sounds so painful. No. no. Okay. No. So, okay. Well, that, that was a waste of time because it grew again. And it made it more recognizable because even the scar tissue was making it more recognizable. Wow, what a bummer. It's a money bag. It's a 90-day money bag. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm kind of happy that these idiot people are kind of like getting some bad karma. <laughs> yeah. I have heard of cases where criminals have done, uh, they just kind of like cut their fingerprints and then they like kind of like it back together in a way that it looks different but Ew. Like together. gross and they do it themselves that's disgusting uh, no you need medical aid when you do that but I don't think any legitimate doctor would do that so you got to be questioning their stuff yeah okay so the next one is called the red kayak back from the dead okay, okay. A lot of people are going to be going to the lake on the kayak. Make sure you listen to this next story so you cannot have any nightmares. <laughs> okay. 
On March 21st, 2002, John called his wife, Anne, four times at her work in Durham in the, north, in the northeast of England. This is it, he told her during one of the calls. Pick me up later. John had worked the night shift at Holm House Prison, and after he was done that morning, he headed home. The two lived in the seaside town of Seatown, Carew, at number three, The Cliff, an imposing three-story seafront property. At 4.30 p.m., John picked up his red kayak, known as the Orca, and walked down to the river's edge, or the water's edge. A few hours later, Anne telephoned the prison, asking to speak to John. But he wasn't there, she was told. And then at 9.30 p.m., she phoned the police and reported him missing and the kayak with him. A search and rescue team operation was launched, um, five RNLI lifeboats, two Coast Guard rescue teams, a police plane, an RAF helicopter, and numerous police officers scoured the sea in search of any sign of him. By the end of the next day, when the search was called off, a single paddle had been found at North Gare, a five-minute drive up the coast from the Darwin's home. A few months later, the orca was found, battered and broken, washed up on a nearby beach. When a body was washed up, it turned out not to be John's. Anne wailed to the police that she wished it had been, as it would have made it easier for her to grieve. With no sign of John, he was presumed dead and officially declared so in April the next year. So, already this is kind of sounding like maybe Anne had something to do with it. Don't you think? I don't, I don't know. This sounds like one of your episodes of Mysteries to I know. <laughs> but it's going to take a wild turn. You just wait. Okay. okay so, so far, it's like really bad. I don't, I don't, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I know. There's no April Fool's component to this. Okay, so Anne used the death certificate to claim 249,000 euro, which would be approximately 400,000 U.S. dollars. In, oh, we got it. Yep. In life and mortgage insurance payouts and pensions. It was a tragic accident, and together with their two adult sons, Anne was left to deal with her grief. Then over five years later, on December 1st, 2007, a man walked into a London police station and declared, I think I may be a missing person. The man was John Darwin. Ooh, so what happened? That was five years later? Yeah. So you just go to the police and say, I think I'm a missing person. Like, how how are you unsure? <laughs> well, I mean, he could have a mission. That's true. But, okay, but you're already, like, yeah, you were already declared dead like five, four years earlier. Yeah. So what happened? Okay, so Anne, his wife, was immediately tracked down, obviously, and she was living in Panama City. So she like left England and went to a warmer climate. Smart. That's what I would do. Smart lady. I mean, you know. I've heard that England's weather sucks. <laughs> she needed some sun. Uh, she told reporters that she was excited to see her husband again, who claimed that he had amnesia. Hey, good job, Mom. Yeah. But she was worried that she would have to pay back the life insurance money. <laughs> With no... I don't know he was declared dead already, so... I know, but does that mean she gets it again when he dies again for real this time? I think that they would just be like, okay, but when he actually dies, you can't get any more. I don't 
it's a that tricky situation. Yeah, I don't know what they do in those circumstances. Exactly. Um, I, I, I don't like that she was excited to see her husband, but it's like, wait, do I have to say everything back? I know, that's like her first thought. So because of that, police were understandably suspicious, like we all are. Okay. And within days, they had started to piece together a remarkable story. John and his wife, Anne, were both arrested and then charged with fraud and money laundering. Okay, so John Darwin had gone kayaking that night in 2002, but he had come home. And at around 6 p.m. after nightfall, Anne met John in the North Gar parking lot. She'd driven her husband 45 minutes away to Durham train station, and he'd made a getaway to the Lake District. A few weeks later, yeah, a few weeks later, after the dramatic search and rescue operation was over, which probably cost them, like, tons of money, Anne drove to Cumbria and picked John up, driving him back to their home. And for five years, nobody, not even her sons, knew that he was secretly living there. Stop. How do you know that somebody's living in the basement? The couple also owned the house next door, and whenever people would come around, John would head through the adjoining doors into number four. He grew a beard and started walking with a limp, but other than that, things retor- returned to a new kind of normal, albeit a more restricted type of living. John would regularly leave the residence to walk on the beach. He even joined the local library using a new da- a new name, John Jones, the name of a baby in his family who had died around the same time that Darwin was born. So he was like stealing an identity. Like, this is like hardcore planning. Yeah. Um, he used the name to get a birth certificate and a passport, which he wasn't afraid to use. So apparently he had had like a cousin that died around the same time that he was born and he just assumed that cousin's identity. Oh my gosh. This is crazy. So it says despite the freedoms he enjoyed, the situation wasn't ideal and soon the couple looked to move abroad, first to mainland Europe and then Panama, Central America. In 2006, they traveled there to buy an apartment, but while meeting the owner of the move to Panama, they were photographed. A year and a half later, John decided he would play the amnesia card in the hope that his story would be believed and the couple could carry on their debt-free life abroad. But when police started investigating, they came across the time-stamped image of the couple smiling broadly on Move to Panama's website. It was the evidence they needed to prove John hadn't been living alone with amnesia. The whole thing had been a fraud and Anne had been on in on it too. Okay, well, I think she has to pay everything back now. <laughs> well, yeah, and also, can you, I, okay, her own adult sons believe that their dad was dead. And he lived, like, in the basement or, or like, under tunnels to the house next door. To, like, how can you not know that there's somebody there? Well, her sons probably came to visit and were just like, oh, there's probably a new renter next door. But it was their dad the whole time. But I just think that Anne is evil because... How can you um, be there supporting your children while they grieve the loss of their father and know all the while that they're not really, that he's not really dead? If I were his kids, I would never talk to them, them again. It's just cruel. I mean, how do you live a life for five years? 
I know. He grew a beard and changed his identity, I guess. I know, but, like, I will flip. Yeah. And they did. They got a picture taken of him, and then it was put on a website. I know. How dumb. Honestly, like, these parents are so mean. Like, they're basically admitting that they would rather have money than the trust of their children. That's That's jacked up. Terrible. That's really jacked up. Yep, but then they got a picture taken in Panama. And, like, what are the chances that that you get a picture taken of you in Panama and that they actually end up using that picture on their website and then you're just screwed? It's my new husband. He looks like my old-day husband. I have a type. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay, so the next one is the Craigslist advertisement, Women Seeking Eradication. It's not every day that you're searching for work when you stumble across an advertisement for a hitman, but that's what happened to three Californian residents in the winter of 2007. The ad was posted on Craigslist.org. The job description was simply freelance. That's a nice way to put it. (laughs) They, They were advertising that they were hitmen? So these three men were on Craigslist one day and they saw an advertisement for a freelance hitman. I know. Intrigued by what the opportunity and offer was, believing it was probably a home-based business or a writing gig, the three men emailed the poster. It was B-O-U-R-N-E, the number two and run, so born to run, saying that they were interested in finding out more. The person who had posted the ad was Anne Marie Linscott, a 47-year-old woman from Rockford, Michigan. In correspondence with the three interested parties, Linscott explained that she was looking for silent assassins and wanted the successful candidate to eradicate a woman who lived in Butte County, California, offering up the woman's name, age, and her work address. Uh, Anne Marie was willing to pay five thousand dollars to whoever performed the eradication tasks. That is not enough. No, and the name is Anne too. What is the problem with this Anne people? So it's Anne Marie. Yes, I know. Okay, unsurprisingly, this was not the type of freelance work that the three men were looking for, and they all reported Lynn Scott to the Californian law enforcement. With Linscott emails and the information that she provided, police were quickly able to track down her intended victim. It transpired that the 56-year-old woman, Carol, who was later only identified in court documents by the initials CZ, was married to a man that Linscott had been having an affair with. When questioned, yeah, when questioned the man soon admitted to knowing Anne-Marie Linscott. Linscott was also married and had been for decades. Together with her husband, she had two teenage children, but over the years, she had developed an unhealthy obsession with a man that she had met online, Carol's husband. Lynn Scott first came into contact with him in 2004 when the two were taking an online college course and started messaging each other. Their conversations progressed quickly, and they soon developed an intimate cyberspace relationship. Yes. After talking on the phone for a while in July 2005, they took the next step to meet in person. They met in Reno, Nevada. Big mistake, big mistake. I know. Big mistake. 
It's okay to be platonic when now they're meeting. Exactly. The husband was attending a conference there. There they spent two days together. In 2007, they met again in the husband's home county in California. It was the same year that a Molotov cocktail connected to a fuse was found in the husband's bedroom. <laughs> Fortunately, it did not go off. Nor No charges in relation to the homemade bomb were ever brought against Linscott, but the man's mistress had started talking about plans to move to Northern California so that she, be, that she could be closer to him. Then in November, she made the decision to hire a hitman. She told. Yes, she told the three um, respondents that her only fear was that the police might be able to connect her to the murder, but that she was very serious about the proposition. At the time, Jim Buckmaster, who was Craigslist CEO, said that it was the first time the website had been used in such a way, but that he wasn't surprised the respondents did the right thing and, and told the police. Yeah. The electronic evidence that made it easy for police to track Linscott down meant Craigslist was an in inhospitable place for felonious activity and an unwise choice for would-be criminals. After FBI agents swooped on her Michigan home, Mary, uh, Anne Marie Linscott was arrested on January 24, 2008, and later indicted on three counts of attempted murder for hire. Her husband stood by her side, denying they had been having any marital, any marital difficulties. But when investigators confronted Linscott with the emails, she admitted she had written them, both at home and at the community college. When they asked her what she meant by the word eradicate, she replied, Duh, well, to have them killed. So she wanted to kill the wife. Yes. Okay. So she wanted to get her her new man's wife out of the picture so that they could live happily ever after together. Uh, for five thousand dollars? Nobody would kill anybody for five thousand dollars. I know, but it's still like that's terrible. That's like that's like a slap on your face. Your life is only worth five thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Yep. And any anybody who would be willing to accept five thousand dollars to kill somebody, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> no, but that's so sad. Wow, there's a lot of cases like that, Rochelle. You should look it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, the big mistake was started getting side conversations. That happens a lot. Yeah, and then meeting in person. Because they had like an emotional affair, and then they made the choice to make it a physical one. And the husband said that we had no problems; like he had no idea. I guess so, but I bet you that there were a lot of red flags that he was choosing to ignore. Yes, that's what I'm thinking. Because yeah. something like this doesn't just happen out of nowhere. There's got to be like some red flags. Yeah. Okay, so apparently she wrote a love letter while she was in prison. Um. And she wanted to be returned. Okay, so she had been sentenced and she got put away at one prison. Um, but then she wanted to go back to a different one because she had fallen in love with the prison guard there. Oh, for goodness she wrote, she wrote, quote, I wish you'd send me a little card with a note letting me know you're thinking of me and missing me. I think of you often every day. The letter and her unrepentant demeanor didn't win Linscott any favor with the judge. He said, I continue to believe, even here today, that she does not accept responsibility. She does not even understand what she has done. 
No. Yeah. To her, I'd like to say, what is the weather like in the La La Land that you live in? <laughs> Well, yeah, and I think that, like, there was something missing in her brain. <laughs> yeah, definitely there was something missing in her brain. Because she just, like, doesn't even seem to understand, like, why what she did was a bad thing. I know. That's terrible. She was definitely sick. Yeah, something was going on. Okay, so this is the last one. So, right. here we go. It's called The Drunk Who Shot the Landlord, Parroting the Evidence. It was a warm July evening when a man strode into the Green Parrot restaurant on 3rd Avenue and 100th Street in Harlem, New York. He was already intoxicated, but he wanted another drink and he was determined to get it. The small establishment's owner, Max Geller, refused the man and asked him to leave. That's when the unwanted patron pulled a gun out and shot Geller point blank in the throat. In the throat? Oh my gosh. Before, yes, that's so gross. Poor man. Before anyone dared apprehend him, the man spun on his heels and dashed out the door, leaving Geller for dead. His injury was severe, but Geller was whisked to the hospital and managed to hold on for a few weeks. He didn't die immediately. Unfortunately, because his throat had been destroyed and he was so gravely ill, he was unable to tell police the man who had shot him, even if he had known. Geller hadn't been the only one in the bar that night. Pedestrians out on the street had seen the gunman run off, but none of the customers knew the name of the assailant, and if they did, they weren't talking. Because remember, we're in Harlem and snitches get stitches, so... Uh, when police visited the bar, their interviewer their interviews yielded few results, but there was one person making a lot of noise. Well, not a person exactly. A parrot. Geller kept Yeah. Geller kept a pet parrot in the restaurant. Remember the name of the parrot the restaurant is the Green Parrot Restaurant. Oh, okay, that's right, yeah. He enjoyed the bird's wide vocabulary and how it had come to call many of the customers by their names. When the police showed up, the parrot kept squawking, Robber! 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 <laughs> the police captain in charge of the investigation was flummoxed. We have a dying victim who can't talk, 20 witnesses who won't either, and a squawking parrot who won't shut up. Then the police learned about the parrot's penchant for saying customers' names and thought he might actually be repeating the name Robert. Detectives started investigating regular patients with patrons with that name, and Robert Butler was on their list. 28-year-old Robert Butler was a taxi driver, but he, had, he hadn't been seen in the city since the shooting. The cops tracked him down in Baltimore, Maryland, where he was working at a Bethlehem steel plant. When questioned about the shooting, Butler said, what makes you think I did it? When he was told that the parrot had put him in the picture, Butler replied, quote, I never did like that bird. Under questioning, Butler owned up to the crime, claiming he'd had some gambling troubles and carried the gun for protection. He said he had been drunk and angry that night and had shot the restaurant owner in a rage. He was sentenced He was sentenced to 15 years in Sing Sing prison. That doesn't seem like a lot of time. 
I don't know. It hasn't said yet. Okay. It said that he lasted for a few weeks, but I don't know. Let's see. Okay. Butler isn't the only criminal to have been caught by a parrot. On May 13th, 2015, troopers from Michigan State Police arrived at Martin and Glenna Durham's Sand Lake House after they were asked to check on the couple by some neighbors. Luckily, Glenna was still breathing, despite having two gunshot wounds to her head, but Martin had been shot five times and was deceased. Glenna was whisked off to the hospital and miraculously survived, but it soon became apparent that she was behind her own grisly wounds and her husband's. She'd shot him and then turned the gun on herself. The police found suicide letters in the house to her children and her first husband saying that she was sorry, but Glenna refused to admit to shooting Martin. It also transpired that the Durhams were about to lose their home and Glenna had kept this a secret from Martin. Papers about the upcoming house auction were found strewn around the crime scene, and police deduced that Martin had discovered Glenna's secret and had confronted her about it. However, despite the overwhelming evidence, a year after the shooting, Glenna had not been arrested. But there was an eyewitness to the crime, an African gray parent named Buddy, that the Durhams kept as a pet. After the shootings, Buddy moved in with Martin's first wife, Christina Keller. That's when the bird started repeating snippets of the conversation before Martin was shot, saying, Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! in Martin's voice. Keller went to the media with a story about the parrot, and she believed it was this press attention that put pressure on the state to prosecute Glenna. She was later tried and found guilty. Martin's mother, Lillian, told the press, quote, that bird picks up everything and anything, and it's got the filthiest mouth around. <laughs> so, note to self, never murder somebody who has a parrot. Well, we were saying that, we were saying that that parrot was never on trial in the other, in the, in the other cases. I know. He could have defended himself. I know. He could have been like, well, you didn't do anything to stop the murder, so we're charging you with aiding and abetting. <laughs> That's all you have to do to win their loyalty. Wow. Well, hopefully you enjoyed those funny cases. I thought they were pretty funny. They, they were interesting, that's for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm still thinking about the lady with the husband that disappeared for five years. I know. And I'm still thinking about putting animals on trial. I think that's really funny. <laughs> but at least they spared the life of the piglets. Yeah, the piglets. Yeah. Those piglets did go to the market. Oh, speaking of piglets, this is really off topic, but have you heard of the new... Did you hear that Winnie the Pooh's patent, like, went out um, at Disney and um, somebody's turning Winnie the Pooh into, like, a horror movie? What? Yeah, it's really, really Winnie funny. Yeah, they actually came out with a trailer, like, not too long ago, so you should look it up. But basically, the premise of it, it seems to be that, like, Christopher Robin leaves the imaginary place at one point, and then he, like, he grow he, he becomes, like, a man, he grows up, he goes to college, you know, and then he comes back with his new girlfriend, 
and everybody in like Winnie the Pooh, Tigger, Eeyore, Piglet, they're all mad at Christopher Robin and they want to get revenge because he forgot about them. An animal gang. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. And so they like terrorize them. I know. Yeah. They're like, you said that you would come back. You said that we would be best friends forever. So, yeah, I think that that's one of the main reasons why Disney keeps, you know, like how they're turning all of the movies into live action movies. I think it's to keep their patent current because they don't want this to happen again. (laughs) That somebody takes advantage of their patent that's gone out and like creates like kind, kind of like poisons the story in a sense. What was the name of the, was it the new one? Is it Eeyore? Eeyore? Isn't it Eeyore? The sad one? Yeah. Yeah, Eeyore. Yeah, he has a lot of repressive, uh, emotional problems. He might be the ringleader, honestly. He might be the godfather of the game. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, when you're watching the trailer, they don't actually show you the faces, but they look creepy. I'm not. I, I am not gonna watch it, but the trailer was like terrifying enough. That's like ruining a lot of people's childhood memories. I know, and that's Vance's favorite ride at um Disneyland. He loves the Winnie the Pooh ride. Well, pretty soon it's gonna be the bad ride. The haunted <laughs> Winnie the Pooh ride. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, these faces were very interesting. That's for sure. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? Yeah. He did it. He did it. Robber, 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 robber. Yeah. Hey, don't do anything in front of Well, I think it's cool that the African gray parrot was not only able to like repeat what Martin had said, but he was he was even able to repeat the way that he said it. Like he could mimic Martin's voice. Well, do you remember our friend Sue? That's the, the bird that she had. Sue. Is this Robin's sister? I don't know. That's cool, yeah. though. It was, yeah, they're very smart birds. Yeah. So I, see, I can see why, um, I can see why the bird would do that. That's really cool. Pretty smart. Yeah. That's really and cool. They, and they do repeat everything. Um, I remember that he, she told me that her bird could mimic the phone ringing. Oh. Because the phone, thinking of the phone that rang, or that the bird had actually uh, learned how to like do the doorbell to their house. Oh. So he sounded like the doorbell, and he could do like um, sirens, like a police siren. Uh huh. So you would think that there would be like an emergency vehicle outside your house. So she was getting April Fools pranked every day. Every day by this bird, but yeah, she said that, it was, that they're very, they're very intelligent, but they're very expensive too. Yeah. 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 So maybe that's like a form of home security is like get a parrot and then if you are ever murdered, they'll tell <laughs> the person. Front, yeah. <laughs> but then you get secure and, and they can actually mimic the person that hurt you. <laughs> I was watching this comedian. I think it was, um, oh, I can't, Dimitri Martin. And he was saying that like owning a bird is such like a power move. It's almost like 
you're like a super villain because you're like, oh, do you see that thing that can't fly? It's not going to for long. It's going to be a ca- in a cage in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> They are messy. They poop a lot. Yeah, they're very messy. Like you have to have you have to have a little bird a little love for your bird because yeah. you just clean that every day. I don't even think I have enough love for my children to keep their clean up their poop every day. So it gets, it gets old fast, isn't it? Yeah. Like the last day we got rid of Vance's last dirty diaper, I was like we are the champions, my oh, friend. Having no kids on diapers, that is the best thing ever. Yeah. And Brian, like, wants to maybe have another one. And I'm like, but our house just stopped smelling like poop. I know. No kidding. <laughs> yes. So, um, so, no, that was that was something that we had to deal with. Yeah. But I always, like I said, I always want to have one. But, yeah. so then I got a stinky dog. Yeah. But he doesn't yeah. poop in the house, at least. That's good. Yeah, I don't have but, patience for puppies. Yeah, but you know, I, I he would have been on trial because he likes to steal my socks. <laughs> He's a kleptomaniac. <laughs> yes, my socks, and he tries to. Oh, uh, we always have to say the cheese stacks. The cheese stacks? Yeah, you never heard of the cheese stacks? No. I'm, I'm sure that your listeners have heard of the cheese stacks. What is that? Every time you open the fridge and you take you take a package of cheese, the dogs come galloping around. Cheese stacks, cheese stacks, cheese stacks. Do dogs like to eat cheese? Oh, dogs love cheese. I didn't know that. So we had to give him a little piece of cheese every time we take cheese out because he makes you pay the cheese stacks. Oh. Well, I knew that um, we had a dog. Was it Calvin or Simba that liked cheese uh, cheese puffs? I think it was Calvin. Calvin. He loved to eat cheese puffs, so now that's making more sense. I didn't know that they actually liked to eat cheese, though. Yeah, when they, at least my vet, I don't know about everybody's vet, but mm-hmm. my vet, when they give them shots or something like that, you know, they give them a little tiny piece of cheese. Interesting. That's so, so that funny. Looks, so now every time we make a sandwich or something, or mm-hmm. scramble eggs with cheese, we have to give him a little, because he will sit there, and he knows. He could be in the other room, mm-hmm. and he hears that bag opening, and you have to pay the cheese tax. <laughs> <laughs> See? I don't know right anything now. about dogs. Yeah, it's all over TikTok. You have, to, you have to pay the cheese tax. <laughs> I just have a cat, so... I don't know anything about dogs. Uh, Taino likes popcorn. I cannot yeah. even. And ice. Like, yeah, I cannot even. Like, you know, when he sees the air popper, he has to eat. Yeah. That's so funny. So I have to keep some fresh, you know, without no butter or anything. Yeah. I gave him, like, a little bit. Oh, and that's cool. So you guys can watch movies popcorn. together and share popcorn? Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. We appreciate I it. Oh, I love being a guest on the, po- on the podcast. And it had been a while. That's true. She wasn't really paying attention, but yeah, she was there. Yeah, but she felt important. Yes. She was there yeah. for the Salem witch trials. So yeah, that's true. I've had two guests. Yeah. Well, thanks for yeah. joining us. No, thank you. I, I love it. I'm vacation. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Do you know what you're talking about next week? Uh, yes, I'm talking about a very creepy Romanian forest. Yeah, so it'll be fun. So I ordered one of your shirts. I know. I'm excited. Yep, I just placed the order last night, so they should be here in about a week or two. Will you be do- Will you be doing another order for people that still want to order? Yes. Yeah, so you will do a pre-order, but I won't be ordering until June 30th, so you won't be able to get it until mid-July, unfortunately. But okay. yep. So when is when is mine coming? Um. So the a uh, person is making them, and they they took two weeks, like one to two weeks last time. So they'll send them to me, and then I'll get them out to everybody. I'm so excited. Yeah, it'll be fun. I want a sticker, too, just for the record. Okay. And I do have stickers on hand, so if you do order those, you can get them right away. You don't All have right. to wait. Well, I'm excited, yeah. about my, I'm excited about my shirt. I'm excited to see everybody repping it. I'm going to put it on your website. I'll yeah. So you can put it on the website. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, thank you. Talk to okay, you later. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> my I'm number one fan. <laughs> yeah, she have a little bit of a bias. All right, see you later, Mom. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate all of you. I know that the quality of sound is not always the best when I have a guest come, um, cause my mom is just talking to me over zoom. Um, but hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed, uh, making it and being a part of it. Um, if you're not already following me on Instagram at mystery unsolved, you totally should. You should also visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. If you would like to binge all 106 of my episodes or purchase some merch If you would like to become a patron, you can do so by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you want to know the best ways to support this podcast, the first one would be to share it with a true crime loving family member or friend. But again, don't let the word family and friend kind of pigeonhole you. You can tell your manicurist, you can tell your cashier at TJ Maxx, You can tell your barber, you can tell your babysitter, you can tell your dog sitter. I want everybody to know about Mystery Still Unsolved and you guys are helping me spread it by word of mouth and I so appreciate that. Um, But the best way to support this podcast will and always will be um, to join me next week when together we'll discover, did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved.